Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Nightlight. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us. We really do appreciate it. Mark has a great lineup for you tonight, but before we get to that, I have to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing introduction. You can find him at nativestorytellers.com. The website is phenomenal, and it reminds us of a way of keeping track of history and cosmology and stories that, that is lost to the generations now. And it's kind of sad because the native storytellers have been able to preserve history far longer than a lot of our textbooks have. Mark has a great show tonight. He's got two amazing people um, and, and talking on subjects that will um, be familiar with a lot of um, those of us who have been around for a while. Uh, I, I'm looking very forward to both the guests that he has on tonight. So let's get started. Mark. It's all yours. Hey, Barbara. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? Good. Well, doing well. Yeah, just, uh, okay, let's get started. I uh, want to maximize our time with our guest. Uh, you know, Carlisle Rachel said our guest uh, has great subject material like she did uh, about last night's show with uh, Gary, and we have more fascinating shows uh, coming up, and you know, we'll have even more new voices. Uh, Scott Skelton has had a lengthy career in journalism. He was an editor and proofreader at the University of Oregon uh, Publications Department. He would go on to co-author Rod Serling's Night Gallery in After Hours Tour. He is researching for another book on Night Gallery, and that's you know, probably going to be a lot of our focus uh, uh, this evening. Um, Scott's research has been quoted in uh, other prestigious publications on Rod's uh, career recently. He was a presenter at the uh, Twilight Zone at 60 conference. Uh, Scott and his co-author Jim Benson have collaborated with Universal Studios 
DVD and Blu-ray uh, versions of the Night Gallery. Uh, Scott's website is nightgallery.net. Uh, welcome, Scott. How are you? Fine. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm uh, really looking forward to you know the first hour with you and the second hour with Greg. Uh, uh, there just seems to be this resurgence of all things Rod Serling. And, you know, there's, uh, you know, we worked on, you know, promoting the uh, Twilight Zone for its 60th anniversary uh, conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, gee, start, starting like June. Uh, you know, this year is the 50th an- anniversary of. Uh, the night gallery and there's uh, you know we're just t- talking right before we w- went live there's you know like that new uh twilight zone series and there's the one back mm-hmm. in the uh, mid 80s uh, uh well, what is it about rod serling that attracts people he has a kind of a universal approach to um his humanist dealings he um I think even most of his, even his most minor plays um, have a an approach that respects humanity, um, and um, I think it's it's um, he's a humanist at the very center. So even if he's writing something mm-hmm. that is um, science fiction or horror or fantasy. Um, it's mostly about character, about the people he's talking about, the um, their their essential um, respect for their humanity, and I think that's what appeals to people. Even after all this time, he can spin a great yarn. He's one of the best fireside, you know, storytellers of all time. But it had would have nothing going for it unless he also saw them as full full-blooded human beings with, you know, um, yearnings and passions and a kind of a sense of their own shared, you know, beingness in this world, sort of, I guess you would say. Yeah, at at the, you know, the TZ at 60 uh, conference, uh, you know, a lot of people were just... uh, Fascinated by the you know the twist endings and mm-hmm. uh, yeah the uh, yeah, moving into the the uh, uh, ushering in like the science fiction age but you know so, so many people were there uh, you know you know really focused on the uh, spirituality of uh, the the messages which you know that you know, I'm just buttressing what you you know just said about the uh, humanity or, or respecting mm-hmm. humanity uh, throughout some so many of the episodes, but um, you know when uh, you know the Twilight Zone ended in what like sixty three, uh, you know there was kind of like a six year gap before 
of the night gallery started in uh, uh, 1969. Uh, but you know, Rod, Rod was actually moving into creating some of the two of the greatest uh, uh, movies of that genre. You, know, you get like Seven Days in May, the Yes. Uh, yes. That, what p- political thriller, and then you get uh, you know, Planet of the Apes. You know, that's like one of the all-time great <laughs> sci-fi. That, then he, uh, you know, eventually goes into uh, you know, getting started with the Night Gallery, and it seemed like it had a great uh, premise. You know, you know promising starts. And you know, I think we're going to just spend uh, you know some of tonight reevaluating that. Uh, yeah, yeah. How, how did this series get underway, and you know, what what was going on at that uh, transitional time from going from Planet of the Apes to Night Gallery? Well, um, his segues into big screen stuff and you named the two best movies he ever worked on which is Seven Days in May and Planet of the Apes they were both um, skillful uh, um, I guess critiques of our society at the time um, Seven Days in May uh, the, the the president in, in the, who, that, who is the um, the main protagonist was very much a, a kind of a JFK slash LBJ kind of character who was being severely criticized for um, some of his policies. But um, what was the critical issue about the whole movie was um, a right-wing coup against um, what was seen as um, too much uh, diplomacy and not enough force, and um, mm-hmm. uh, because of that, I think uh, he foresaw what, what uh, frankly, I see is a lot of what's happening today. Um, but uh, Planet of the Apes was a more broader-spanning criticism of our culture, which tends to um, denigrate what we don't understand and. Um, uh, both of those films were pure Serling because he was a, a social critic first um, and a storyteller second, I think. Now, all of his shows, even some of the, the, the lighter, I guess, um, materials he did for both um, Night Gallery and for The Twilight Zone, were about um, how small humanity can be sometimes. I mean, he did a lot of ones about that were that were... Uh, substantiating the, 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 the better qualities of humanity, but um, there is a there's a smallness that he would not shrink away from, and he wanted to put it out front, put a spotlight on, to tell us that see, sometimes we are awesome, and other times we are uh, uh, we don't show our best face. And um, Seven Days in May and Planet of the Apes showed us uh, what the what the punishment is for that kind of thinking. 
Okay. Uh, that is r- r- relevant to, to today. But, uh, you know, how, how did the, you know, Rod's do, doing these great movies, how did he uh, move back into uh, television series after what, uh, about a six-year hiatus? I think rather easily, actually. I think he, oh. um, his, well, I think anyway, his scripts for, um, for Night Gallery, I don't find any lesser than his scripts for Twilight Zone. I mean, I know the res- the response to uh, critically was was not as strong because there were other people in charge of the production of the show, but in terms of what Serling produced for the series, his scripts were directly in line with the kind of um, serious social commentary he was creating for the Twilight Zone. And also, about, as you say, the, the kind of a spirituality, the, the sense that we are as a people um, mm-hmm. should be most directly trying to uphold each other and, and be um, stronger for each other. And uh, I think that comes out in his strongest scripts for both the series. And, and, and speaking of both the series, in Night Gallery, you have a lot of uh, the Twilight Zone actors and actresses uh, returning. You have uh, uh, Roddy McDowell. Well, you know he's then you know he's he's moving from Planet of the Apes. Uh, in, in, into uh, you know the what pilots episode of the series, and you have Agnes yeah. Moorhead and Burgess Meredith, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Mickey Rooney. You have all, uh, and even though it wasn't as uh, well received as uh, you know the Twilight Zone, but but it was also branching into a. a more of a horror genre. Um, you, you know, people like Stephen King, who, uh, back in you know, the 80s, thought it, it was really a uh, terrific series. And, and I think uh said The Caterpillar was one of the greatest shows ever. Yeah, I don't think Stephen had a, a huge respect for the series, but he understood good drama and he understood that the caterpillar which is by i would say by far the most notorious <laughs> of the night gallery <laughs> shows had um had a kind That's of a good a word. Creeping, um yeah it it's um the the great thing is you don't see any gore you don't even see the main horror the 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 earwig the caterpillar they're talking about the one burrowing through the man's brain but you see all the effects of it so it's really a very subtle piece and Lawrence Harvey the actor who stars in it took it only because he thought it was such a well-written piece that it was such a clever um, psychological display of of these um, frankly, kind of rather um, unhealthy sexual 
obsessions of this character and how it affected him emotionally and physically, you know, psychologically and uh, affected the other people around him. And frankly, um, what Serling did, he was adapting a short story that was written in 1908 by a former, um, I guess, diplomat in the Malaysian area. He had lived in Borneo. And he wrote this piece. And when you read it, there's frankly nothing of the subtlety that Serling brings to it in his adaptation. Essentially, Serling takes two-thirds of the short story, adapts it, um, fits his own ideas into it, and he makes it this brilliant piece of theater that if you read the short story, you would have gotten none of the um, uh, of the quality aspects of it. Um, it just shows you how Serling was such a um, understanding um, developer of, of drama. He was he was a dramatist first. I mean, he could write uh, short stories and novels as well as the next guy, but his real understanding was drama on television, in, in theater, radio, that kind of thing. He uh, he understood the human voice and how its ability to come across to other people as um, um, this amazing um, font of human wealth of understanding. It was great. Yeah, and just to stay on the subject for a little while longer, and you know what you're saying about the drama for TV, um Maybe one of the maybe one of my favorites that you know, could could be um, uh, fall into the example you're giving is um, you know, Doctor Stringfellow's uh, Rejuvenator. Uh, yes. You know, there's a, a lot of really good you know TV drama. Packed in that what twenty some minutes of actual air airtime. You know, you see a dad uh, going to a doctor who's you know basically just selling uh, and just he's a snake oil salesman. But you know, you really uh, get you know the actor does a great job of. Demonstrating his panic and concern over his uh, sick daughter, plus you know the you know the, the really creepy ending that um, is uh, more reminiscent of uh, the Twilight Zone. Exactly. Yeah, I mean it was a very Twilight Zone-ish episode. It's one of my favorites from my gallery. It's. Um... Yeah, it is mine. Too, um, but... He, yeah, he presented this um, kind of um, unpleasant character study of a con man who would bilk anyone to get a little more cash, and uh, he promises this poor farmer that his daughter, who he knows because not because of any intelligence of his, but because a former doctor who he 
speaks with regular nose is uh, peritonitis. Her, you know, one of her organs has exploded and she's dying. And he essentially doesn't give a shit about it, pardon my French. And he just, um, he decides to sell him some more of his snake oil. And this poor child dies after he's promised this guy that he's essentially going to resurrect her almost. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's just, it's a horrendously cold hearted piece of drama. And I mean, I don't think Serling would have allowed it to have passed without him being upbraided strongly. And he winds up having a horrible death because of his cold heartedness. But, um, yeah, it's, um, there's definitely some links today to current health care and um, uh-huh. that kind of thing. I mean, we, we, we all see this kind of thing all the time, this kind of cold-heartedness. And this is just one more analogy that fits perfectly into our current state of affairs where we're dealing with people who don't really have any more empathy than they can possibly Imagine unless they're getting something, you know, paid from behind or something like that. I guess you would say. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, you, you know, you're successfully arguing your point. I, I think we've all, uh, you, know, you probably just look at the opioid crisis and yeah, realize, exactly. uh, a lot, you know, a lot of doctors were, um. You know, pushing uh, knew they were pushing a bad product, but yeah, you know, we'll we'll save that for another show. But yeah, you know, there are also <laughs> like re- reoccurring themes, like uh, you know, the, uh, the night gallery had the doll, and yeah, it just seemed like it it, it was you know, doing a, a you know, remake of Talkie Tina about ten years later, and. It, it, yeah. It's yeah. It, it, yeah the the Savalas one. It, it was actually kind of funny. You know, he's th- throwing the doll in the uh, garbage can, yelling at it, and you know the doll is it, kind of like the same theme. That it, it's just there and it just really annoys you. But it, it, there is a little bit more of the horror element added to it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one was kind of an interesting look at this uh, same theme. I agree. Yes. Um, Living Doll was, I mean, the main villain was the father, sorry, the stepfather, who did not have any particular feeling for his stepdaughter, who was obviously treating her uh, brutally and without compassion. And he was treated. Um, in a perfectly Twilight Zone aspect as, as kind of like, well, you're not worthy of being amongst true human beings, and he wound up being murdered by the doll that was protecting her young charge, um, his stepdaughter, who was being, well, we can guess, being brutalized by her stepfather, or at least being badly treated. Mm-hmm. Um the night gallery version was slightly different. The victim 
of this was essentially um, the people who had been colonized in India by Britain's iron boot. Um, the character who is the, the, the victim of the doll isn't a callous stepfather. He's a member of the Queen's army who has essentially um, um, brutalized a, a resistor, uh, someone who said, um, we're not standing up for this, we're going to push against you, someone who wants you know, uh, independence for India, which ultimately came in the 1940s. But this short story that, that uh, Serling adapted was from 1910. And that's a time when India was still under the boot of Great Britain. So um, even though it's a great crackerjack tale of, of a, a doll um, enacting vengeance on a person, it's also about, um, I guess, about colonialism and its cruelty, ultimately, when you take a sovereign nation and put it under the boot of another nation simply because they have, what, better weapons than you. Um, they're both very effective. I think The Doll is considered to be one of the best Night Gallery episodes, and certainly most people remember Living Doll as one of the best Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, Twilight Zone was, uh, that particular episode was not written by Serling, but he certainly understood its value, and I think he followed it through in the, the Night Gallery episode when he adapted that story himself. Okay, and Scott, um, yes, yeah, we did, did, did a review of you know, a, a couple of our favorite episodes. Um, you know, we need to uh, take a look at you know Rod introducing the episode. Uh, you know. He, you know, walks into view and you know goes to the uh, painting that sets the theme for uh, you know tonight's uh, story. And uh, a couple weeks ago, you were just at the Universal Studios uh, studying these paintings and you know the prints and. Uh, yeah, I'd like to hear uh, more about that. I, you know, who, who was painting them? I, I, I didn't know they were curated somewhere. Uh, you know, t tell us a little bit more about uh, th that experience. Uh, that, that that sounds very interesting. Sure. Um, Rod's idea at the time when he created the series of Night Gallery was to have him as a. Um, he would show up on screen as a curator at a museum and be presenting paintings and sculptures and things like that, that would illustrate the main themes of the stories he was telling. Um, so he, um, the show was set up so that um, paintings would be the main introduction to each of the stories. And for the pilot film, which was a one-off that 
was presented in November of 1969, they got um, one of the studio's best artists, Yaroslav Gaber. He was a Hungarian artist who um, was one of their best um, artists. But for the series, when it became uh, a regular series, uh, Gaber was considered unavailable, so they went to one of the other illust- you know, production illustrators on the set, who was um, Tom Wright. Tom was immensely gifted and um, was capable of, at very short notice, producing um, handfuls of paintings that all looked like they were done by somebody different with no identifiable stylistic qualities that would tell you, well, it's all done by the same guy. None of them looked like that. So Hmm. Night Gallery had obviously people in the production area who were very savvy. And um, uh, what we're trying to do with this new book, the book, the book is an attempt to showcase the art for the series, which by far over the years, by the decades since it's been made since the seventies has been one of the strongest selling points of the series. People love the art. Um, And so what we're trying to do with um, Creature Features um, publications, we're trying to create um, a book that is like a coffee table art book, like you would have, uh, what, the the finest artworks in the Louvre or um, the London Museum or, Uh you know, the Getty Museum. Um, You would have um, page by page a full color reproduction of the painting, a description of um, what we know of how it was made. Luckily, we have a lot of the um, input from the artists themselves. And um, we are, um, we think it's going to be one of the best books they put out because frankly, the artwork is astounding. After all these years, it's um, good to see them in there in a, in a more respectful place. What we did at Universal because we've only been able to find about fifty in the hands of collectors. We're trying to find, uh, like reproduce all of them, and to do that because some of them are in places we have no idea where they are. We went to Universal Studios and said, um, "We'd like a license to print these, and we'd like you to produce the um, the." images we need to publish. So um, for the 50 or so that we cannot find anywhere out there in the world, which may have been destroyed or kept in private hands who do not know us or something like that, we're um, we're asking Universal to produce um, shots of the painting. And so far they've been very helpful at that. And uh, we just simply want to produce the best possible book of the images that were created for this for the series since we think they're actually really important. They're as good as anything I've seen in any 20th century uh, survey course of art for, you know, art history for in, in the college course I've taken. I think they're awesome. Um, but um, at any rate, Universal has been very helpful for us and they're producing um, as we speak. <laughs> um uh, images directly from the film to reproduce in this book, and um, it's wow. I'm very proud to be uh, to to be you know affiliated with this with this series. So it's 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 um 
it's it's a product we've been thinking about for at least the last 25 years. And, and Scott, speaking of um, uh, you know the images, you know just you know really outstanding uh, pieces of art. Uh, you know you do have images on your website uh nightgallery.net and <laughs> you know you can go you know I was looking at them and it, you know you have like all all of them there and you know once you look a little closer at uh you know the lone survivor uh you know that one just kind of uh caught my eye you know the solitary person in the dinghy uh, mm-hmm. had like a uh, like a skull kind of miss that yeah the, he's obviously not all there he's um he's a, essentially a, a a phantom um a, a ghost um you know a skull and some rags and bones mm-hmm. yeah he's, yeah it, um, it was it, it, it was yeah. You know, just just going to your website to get get a little bit better view. Yeah, you know, really you know, really illustrates the point that you're making about the need to have a coffee table book of these images available for us to appreciate. Yeah. Um. There are a lot of fans of macabre art. And I think this is among the highest levels of of interest in that area, certainly, yes. And were, were the paintings done after the script was written, or did Tom write – uh, do a painting and you know, inspired Rod or one of the other uh, night gallery uh, uh, screen authors to base a story on the painting. How, how did that work? That was um, fairly um, well. Here's how it would work. Um, the producer was Jack Laird. He loved Tom's work. He hired him specifically for this piece. Um, what Jack would do was give him one of well, one of three things: the script, the short story, or a short um, reduction of the story, and tell him this is what we want. Um, but after that, he would give him like complete freedom in expressing what he thought would be the primal idea that would express the story. He didn't tell him, do this, do that. Tom would have to go in and um, invent the uh, concept, visual concept, that would tell the story in the space of a few brush strokes. So, um, and he succeeded almost all the time. I mean, he was very gifted in that area. And he 
himself being rather young, he didn't know all the aspects of art history he needed to, so he would do research and sometimes come up with a, a style or another artist style that he could like borrow and uh, translate into some more modern terms. And he did that like so often. Um, you look at all the paintings and very few of them you can identify as the same artist. He was gifted at that. His, his daughter, Siobhan, told me that she thought he would have been a great art forger. And I, I think that's probably pretty well true because he could work in any any artistic um, style, uh, ancient to modern, and he often did. I mean, minimalist, um, still lifes. Uh, one of his favorite styles was um, Impressionism, and he, um, he did a few in that. He did abstract. He did semi-abstract. He did um, straight... Um, uh, like uh, obvious visions of what's actually true in life. I mean, he did all of these things. He uh, he was very gifted. He is very gifted, and uh, we've been lucky to have him offer uh, offer to us um, information on how he thought about each project, how he was inspired by something, and and um, brought it to uh, fruition. He's um, Tom Wright is a a great artist. He's now actually a, a film director. He spends a lot of his time working, directing episodes of Supernatural and NCIS and other TV shows. But he's still a very gifted artist. And, you know, if he stopped directing, he could still paint uh, for people and still get paid very handsomely, I'm sure. Okay. And, okay, so just, let me just cover a little bit of the Artwork, you know, you, you, uh, you've also uh, done a lot of uh, work on your website, e emphasizing another art form uh, used in uh, the series, uh, the music, and you, know, you, you talk about. The uh, early use of uh, synthesizers, you know, kind of, oh, yeah. yeah, showing up after the initial success of um, Walter Carlos's "Switched On" Bach sure. uh, album. So, uh, can you give us a little bit of background on the? how the music was used for this uh, series of uh, macabre stories. Sure. Um, the producer who was hired by Universal was a guy named Jack Laird, who was a jazz aficionado from back when, but he also had a true faith in electronic music as it was being developed in the late 60s and early 70s. And one of the finest composers and workers within that realm in those days was a guy named Gil Mallet, who started as a bass baritonist and, and did a number of fine uh, albums for Blue Note, but who was also starting to build his own instruments. Um, 
and was keen to produce uh, film scores and television scores using these things. And apparently, somehow, Jack knew about it and called him in to do certainly the, the theme and then later some of the um, the uh, uh, the film scores for some of the episodes themselves, including Dr. Stringfellow's Rejuvenator, which was a brilliant score. Um, what what Gill did was he kind of probably shouldn't have done it at the time. He was, at the time he was scoring an electronic score for the Universal Blockbuster, the uh, the Andromeda Strain. And Jack probably was oh. off and said, "Look, I I want you to write the uh, I want you to write the score for Night Gallery." And Gil told him, "Look, I can't do the entire series. I might be able to give you a theme, but I would have to be." doing it under the table because if Robert Wise, the director of the Andromeda Strain, found out I was taking time away from creating his score, I would be canned, essentially. So um, he did it surreptitiously and created a score for the first season and then later the second season of Night Gallery using mostly electronic sco- his electronic uh, instruments that he created himself. I mean, he um, things like the Percussitron 3, and, um, you know, the doomsday machine, this is the things he called these instruments, these electronic instruments that he created. They're unlike anything heard before or after. When you hear composers who use electronic instruments in other movies at the time, um, Jerry Goldsmith was, was using them quite a lot and stuff like the reincarnation of Peter Proud and stuff like that. But they were all commercially available electronic instruments. What Gill did was create his own instruments, and that's why you hear them today, and they still sound so fresh because he was creating that no one was ever using on any other production. Um, and Gill was um, like uh, doing scores for the pilot movie with the Six Million Dollar Man, and it has a sound like nothing else because he's using the instruments that no one has ever used before or since. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. You know, Gil was a very talented guy, and um, but the great thing about the profile of the music on the show for Night Gallery was that he used composers who were not the usual run-of-the-mill guys. They were usually someone out of the way. I mean, he would use Ed Sauter, who was best known for the Sauter Finnegan Orchestra back in the 40s and 50s, but he was creating incredible scores for like the Caterpillar or Brenda, or uh, The Return of the Sorcerer, and uh, he was using Paul Glass, who was a um, kind of a specialist in um, atonal scores, but he created these brilliant scores for like Silence of the, uh, excuse me, the uh, Silence of Secret Snow, and um, uh, Question of Fear, uh, and Oliver Nelson, who was a brilliant jazz artist, he brought on to do scores for some of the shows and he was using people that weren't normally used at Universal because he didn't want the same sound that anyone else had. He wanted something new and different and fresh. And that's mm-hmm. um, one of the great things about Night Gallery as a show. It it sounds and looks different than any other show at the time. Yeah, it, it is uh, Gil Millay uh 
also responsible for the Koshak theme song? Yes, he was. Uh, um, he borrowed that uh, from a film he did. Um, what was the film? Um, the Quester Tapes. Uh, Gene Roddenberry um, uh, TV movie. Um, it was a secondary theme that he borrowed and became the theme for Colshack the Night Stalker, the great um, horror TV show from the four seventies. Yes. Okay. I, 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 so it, yeah, I, yeah. I just didn't realize that he he was involved with uh, the the Andram- Andromeda strain. I, I mean. The, you know, I think you're giving us all this like behind the scenes stuff. <laughs> yeah, it just really uh, synthesizes all, all the creativity that was uh, yeah, these, going these into this series. Yeah. Um, Gil was obviously into other stuff at the time. He was becoming a real popular artist at. Universal because all the producers really liked his music, and his music sounds like no one else. I mean, I listen to his stuff, and it's still you know you can't hear references to any other composer. I, he was quite the brilliant guy. I'm sad I didn't get to meet him personally, uh, you know, before he passed on. But um, you know, he was not just a great jazz artist; he was a great um, you know dramatic scoring artist too. Um, I think his greatest score is probably his score for a universal television movie called um, Frankenstein, the true story. Um, but I mean, I, probably uh, everyone knows uh, the Andromeda strain because it was one of the great science fiction movies of the seventies. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, I did not know that. I'm just glad, glad to have you on to, uh, Educate us on all, all these, you know, little tidbits. But you know, when they add up, they just give you the a, a uh, fuller uh, uh, picture. And okay, so it, for your book, uh, you know, uh, Rod Sterling's Night Gallery and After Hours Tour, yeah, you did interview a lot of the actors and actresses, uh, you know. You know the te- technicians, you know, all, all the people uh, working on the uh, uh, s- series. Uh, you know, how, how did they you know, react, or you know, what were their reflections? You know, forty, uh, uh, fifty years later. Well, it was uh, at the time it was in the 90s, so it was only a few 25 years oh. later, I would guess. But at, at, at the time, though, however, I mean, um, not everyone we asked to go on the record would. Um, but we ultimately interviewed about 150 people um, actors, directors, writers, um, you know, directors, assistant directors, you know, um, cinematographers. Uh, musicians, the, the whole, you know, essentially anyone who worked behind the scenes. And the ones who did, with almost no exceptions, were wanting to discuss very positive aspects of their experience. You know, I mean, 
Um, and some of the actors were also doing other stuff at Universal. Obviously, it was the most productive uh, studio in television at the time. I mean, no one was beating Universal at creating television product in the 70s. But he had lovely things to say about Night Gallery, even though some of it was like, um, I'm in a, I'm essentially creating sausages in a, in a production factory, but he obviously had enough respect for the material and the people he worked with to want to discuss um, how much it meant to him. And he did. Um, you know, I mean, he was, um, Dillman was an actor who was raised in theater and, you know, was, uh, you know, he, he had Tennessee Williams and Eugene O'Neill and some of the great theatrical pieces, but he also had to raise a family and needed to do television work because, frankly, that's where the money was. So he did that, and he enjoyed some of it, and he seemed to enjoy a lot of his work on Night Gallery, and he was not alone. Um, so, you know, I mean, it was part of it you have to see as the um, the – realities of the period. I mean, as an actor, you had to do uh, go where you were, were wanted, but um, um, a lot of them really liked the work they did there, and many of them mentioned the quality of the scripts because um, they were frankly better than they would be getting on Mission Impossible or Hawaii Five-O. These scripts are pretty awesome. Yeah. Not all of them were written by Rod Serling, but a lot of them were, you know? Mhm. Good. Good point. And when you were interviewing, you know, the variety of people for the you know, who were involved with the shows, um, did did you talk with uh, uh, Steven Spielberg? Yeah, uh, he 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 got his start on. A night gallery episode. Uh, you know, how, how did that go? Did Did you have a chance to talk to him and get his reflections? I wish we could have persuaded him. I mean, oh, but frankly, by that time he had done numerous interviews about his work on the show. I mean, he even like recorded a a film for a Today Show. The he did an interview with uh, Gene Siskel, and so we were able to call from that his. Okay. side of the show. And we also got to talk with other people behind the scenes at Night Gallery who dealt with Steven Spielberg and were able to comment on that too. So we had kind of both sides. Even if Steven had no interest in dealing with us um, in 1995, six, whenever we were asking him, um, we didn't need to go very far because there was already stuff out there on the internet in which he was discussing with other journalists his experience. So we matched that with um, the interviews with some of the uh, people in the cast and the, and the uh, uh, you know, we spoke with some of the actors like Tom Bosley, who remembers distinctly working with um, Stephen both those times he was working with him on that gallery. Uh, and we got a pretty, I think, pretty rounded picture of what it was like at the time. I mean, Stephen was under a tremendous amount of pressure um, this was the first stuff he'd ever done. He'd only done um, a sort of quasi-professional piece called Amblin, 
that he tried to get people interested at Universal at watching. And so um, one of the um, administrators there, Sid Scheinberg, said, let's give this kid a chance and started, like, shopping around for production. That's how we got the job on the pilot film of Night Gallery. And he did an outstanding job, I must say. I mean, the, the episode The Eyes that he did was brilliant. Um, and he did a piece for uh, Night Gallery's first season called Make Me Laugh, which was unfortunately not well-received at NBC. But I don't think it was his fault because he wasn't the problem. The problem was the casting of uh, the main parts, which were not his problem. Um, but at, at, at any rate, at some point, NBC thought he should never work in the business again and tried to cut him out. Um, luckily, that did not happen, obviously, because we have this incredibly rich, um, what do you want to call it, uh, his, his oeuvre, his, his portfolio, his great film. Legacy. Since then. His legacy, yes, exactly. Um, we wouldn't have Jaws if he'd been cast. We wouldn't have Duel, frankly. Um, look, I mean, uh, Saving Private Ryan, uh, you know. Um, the the, the, uh, the concentration films. camp, yeah, the, the uh, E.T. and the con- – uh, uh, Absolutely. It wouldn't have E.T. You uh, wouldn't have Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You wouldn't have um, Schindler's List. Uh, no, that, I, that, that was the one I was thinking of. I mean, uh, you know, uh, so some guy at NBC had his um, head up his wazoo or something like that because this kid was talented, and you can't blame him on having a badly cast piece. I mean, he had no choice in that. It was chosen by the producers. So at any rate, um, I think Steve has done very well for himself, and he started out on Night Gallery and did a great job as far as I'm concerned. And what Diane Keaton was there, and she would go on to uh, star in uh, yeah the Godfather uh, trilogy. I mean, uh, people got there you know uh, went on to be huge uh, uh, actors and actresses from. From their Diane one experience with one of her first pieces, yes. Wow, and okay, Mark, it, it, Mark uh, Hamill, you know. Oh, 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 which one was he in that uh, launched? Yeah, you know, got him started. Mark Hamill was in a very um, late second season piece called um, uh, "There Aren't Any More Banes." He played a rather surly uh, messenger boy. But, I mean, this was like, what, uh, five years before Star Wars. He was just starting right. out. And, you know, I mean, it's hilarious seeing him now. And Diane Keaton the same way. I mean, she had a very um, early role in, in a first season Night Gallery. And obviously she made Godfathers and Annie Hall and any number of pieces since then. But they were all just starting out, and Lindsay Wagner was also, you know, before she was a big hit with the Bionic Woman, had two roles in Night Gallery. I mean, um, you know, I mean, they were um, they were kids, and they like cut their teeth on television episodes like Night Gallery, and they were really good in the roles they did. So it just shows you that um, they were correct in hiring them. Okay, and. 
Scott, we're you know down to about three minutes or so. Uh, you know, where can you tell people where they can get uh, your Rod Serling's Night Gallery and After Hours tour, and wh- when's the new book coming out? And you know, if you want to plug your website and anything else. Sure. Um, the, we're we're still selling the um, the After Hours tour companion guide to Night Gallery. That's that can be found on any major bookstore. But we we sell it also, or at least like give links to it at nightgallery.net, which is the also the Night Gallery website. Um, as for the new book, well, we're still putting that together. We're hoping to have a release date in January. But until then, you can keep checking uh, creaturefeatures.com, which has um, is going to have all the most information. It's going to be where it's going to be sold anyway, so that's the place you would have to go. Uh, we're still putting it together. I mean, we're still working with Universal to gather all the images, so we're not done yet. But we've got most of the text written because we've had to go to Tom Wright and Yaroslav Gaber's son, Thomas, to get information on each of the paintings, and we've already written most of the book. We just need the images now, and uh, and we're gathering them as as we speak. So, um, But those are the two websites I would pay attention to if you want, had any interest in this. But you can also find book sales on Barnes & Noble and uh, Amazon and the other standard sellers of this kind of stuff. But uh, if you want the paintings book specifically, that will have to be only through creaturefeatures.com, which will have all the information on that. Okay. Well, uh, Scott, we're just about out of time. Our second-hour guest is here, and I just want to thank you for being a a terrific guest. This is fun just reminiscing about one – one of my favorite shows gr- growing up as a kid and uh and just watching them you know the late night uh you know reruns too uh, it, it, you know this is just a lot of fun uh, you know yeah. r- really appreciate I mean, your insights oh good you know well did uh uh have you back when the new book is out and Again, I want to thank you, and we have our second-hour guest here. Uh, you know, get get the archive to you uh, tomorrow, and uh, we will stay in touch. Sounds great. Thanks a lot. For All, right. Your time. Th- th- All right. All th- right. Th- thank you, Scott. Okay, and Barbara, if you want to bring Greg on, that'll be fine. It's uh, – Here's some clicking, so I get. I think he's there, and um, hello. Yeah, there, there he is. Yeah, Bar- Barbara put on her high high heeled sneakers for uh, this show. Yeah, uh, yeah. We have our, you know, Barbara's first uh, you know, wall of fame project she's working on, and like he. Uh, Greg Martin is our guest. He, he's the first one to autograph a uh, photo, a band photo, and it's on her wall of fame in her kitchen. And 
Greg Martin is a super special DJ collaborator. Uh, his fellow Kentuckian, Merle Fankhauser, uh, graduated from Nightlight Part 2 uh, to make two appearances on Greg's Lowdown Hoedown on WDNSFM.com out of Glasgow, Kentucky. And you may have seen Greg and his Grammy award-winning band, the Kentucky Headhunters, at a few farm aids. Uh, perhaps you have one or all several of their 11 CDs. Uh, Greg also works closely with Vintage Guitar Magazine. Uh, Greg is the Headhunters lead guitarist and will begin teaching guitar lessons starting next month. And we'll be talking about the Kentucky Headhunters' recent release of Live at the Ramblin' Man Ramblin' Man Fair. Uh, welcome, Greg. How are you? I'm doing great, Mark. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm fine. I'm just uh, glad uh, you're here with us. Uh, you know, the Headhunters have nothing to do with uh, the Night Gallery, but uh, uh, that's you know, but. Barbara says she likes my uh, uh, programming that throws curveballs at the audience like that. So we'll, we'll have to uh, – we'll still make this work and ha- have a lot of fun tonight. Oh, that's fine, man. The headhunters are one scary-looking bunch, so we can make this work. <laughs> okay. I mean, come on. Uh, there's, there's more in common than you think, probably. Okay, so – uh, a scary-looking group of guys is the uh, common theme for tonight's show. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful being here on your show. But I, I, uh, and hello, Barbara and Mark. It is wonderful being here. It's just uh, I'm sorry. My technical inabilities were a little uh, <laughs> a little out of control. And I finally figured out what to do, and I'm sorry about that, guys. But uh, okay. you know how it is? We're lucky. We found figure things out, you know. <laughs> okay, uh, we're here uh, now, so that's all that matters. But uh, yes, um, we, uh, what's the, the story uh, behind uh, live at the Ramblin' Man Fair? You have an uh, uh, American country uh, rock band recording a concert in. England. How, uh, how did that happen? Well, you know, for many years, the Headhunters, I mean, it's uh, quite a, a long history. We really hit the road as the Kentucky Headhunters. The, the band started as the Kentucky Headhunters, as we know it, in 1986. In 1989, we uh, signed our, our first record deal with Mercury Nashville. And for many years, we just toured in the States, and we'd go to Canada. And, uh, you know, we really didn't fly. We had a couple of guys in the band that worked uh, real keen on flying, which I understand that. And we just made I, – I just figured for years, you know, uh, it got up to about eight years ago, and I thought, well, we're never going to England, you know. And I was okay with that, to be honest with you. I, I You know, and – and then 
with the success of Blackstone Cherry, which Richard Young's son is the drummer in that band, and we know all those guys really well because they, they grew up in this area and they used the same practice house. Uh, they, they have become quite a draw in England. They, they're huge over there. And they would get asked about us and want to know why we never come over. So lo and behold, 2016, we have an offer to play Sweden Rock over in Sweden, and we played that. And then we flew home, and then we went back and done our first tour of England uh, about, I can't remember, July or something like that. It's it's all a blur now. Uh, but one of the shows that we did was at Ramblin' Man, and unbeknownst to us, we didn't know they were actually taping the show, you know, on multi-track. Had no idea. And uh, we found out later that the show was uh, available for us to, to review and to check out. So I brought it back to the States and uh, took it to the studio, and we checked it out. And we thought, well, hey, man, we got an album here. So mixed it up just right and um, added a couple of uh, bonus tracks with Johnny Johnson on it that we had laying around. And that uh, was picked up by Alligator Records, you know, uh, Bruce Diglar. That was the second release on, on Alligator. But it was really, it was just really, I, we have to thank Blackstone Cherry for the initial trip over. We've since been over, uh, this year makes three times, you know. And uh, it, it, it was it was great. I mean, you know, I mean, I have to be honest with you, I don't, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't like leaving the house as much as I did, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, but I'm really happy now that, that my friends and I, I mean, it, it's amazing, Mark, that Richard and Fred were the first guys, first band I ever played with was with, was with those guys right there. And it, 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 I was talking to my wife today about that, and that's just amazing that we're still playing. And I got the experience going to England with those guys because when we started out in Midcast County going to school together, we just thought maybe if we were lucky, we might get to play at the Glasgow Armory. <laughs> you know? And then, you know, you start setting your goals, go, oh, maybe we'll get to play Louisville someday, Nashville, New York, you know. The, you know, we, we never envisioned as we were growing up that we'd ever, ever get to go to England, you know. And, um, where so many of our heroes come from. But like I say, we had no idea that that tape was running that day. And we were lucky enough that Alligator Records was uh, kind enough to put it out. And it's out there now. Now we've got some, uh, you know, uh, we just went back in October and uh, played, you know, played again. And um, we've got we got some more live shows. You know, we might actually go see it. We might release a couple tracks from some of that stuff. You know, so mm-hmm. it, it's it's uh, we're a work in progress, you might say. Okay, so you know, just to stick with the um, CD, uh, you know, the English blues guys like Clapton that you grew up listening to, you know, or listening to. Yeah, yeah, you know, the uh, Delta bluesmen like Robert Johnson, and then you know you, you go over to England and are playing, you know, like the yeah, you 
kind of like a your version of what you heard uh, by listening to you know the uh, British blues guys who learned all this stuff from the uh, American guys, and you're doing Hey Jude and. Um, mm-hmm. You know, have you ever loved a woman? So it's kind of like everything's uh, come around full circle on this uh, uh, CD. And, you know, uh, how did the English audience, uh, you know, receive you? It seemed like uh, you, know, you can hear the uh, you know, yelling and applauses on the CD. But, you know, uh, you know what was the visual image of you know, the crowd's reception of the headhunters from the stage. Oh, the crowds were great over there, especially Ramblin' Man. They were out, they were out of sight, man. Uh, you know, we, uh, since we didn't go over there for many, many years, we were just, uh, we, we, we're not a household word over there. So we're, we're kind of building the brand over there, so to speak, you know, and I think when people do first see us walk out on stage, they're going, well, who are these guys? I mean, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> where did these guys come from, you know? And, and then really, I, I think if they, they stick with us, they, they always seem to really enjoy it. Because a lot of our influences, and it's true, even though we love blues, we love Robert Johnson, we love Otis Rush, we love Lisey John Estes, we love... Uh, Mississippi John Hurt, we love B.B. King, Albert King, Freddie King, we love um, Alan Wolf, Muddy Waters, all these people. But it took the English guys like Rolling Stones, it took Cream, it took Peter Green, it took John Mayall, uh, Jeff Beck, and people like that to bring the music of our homeland back to us. And I was talking to Richard Today or yesterday, Blackstone Cherry have released a. Uh, they've released two blues EPs on their label, and this week their 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 blues EP, Back to the Blues Number Two, is number two on the Billboard uh, blues charts. And their treatment of the blues is not traditional. It's Blackstone Cherry doing blues songs, but see that's the same thing when we were growing up. When we heard Cream and we heard the Jeff Beck group, or we heard maybe John Mayall was a little more traditional, but a lot of the heavier bands like Zeppelin, uh, I'm sure that a lot of the purists looked at those guys shaking their heads going, well, that's not blues, you know. But you got you got to understand, those guys like that brought the blues to us youngsters and made us go searching back and going, you know, when you looked on a cream album and look on the crossroads and go, Oh, Robert Johnson wrote this. I want to know more about Robert Johnson. I want to know more about Chester Burnett who wrote sitting on top of the world from wheels of fire. And that turned out to be Howard Wolf. And then when you check out McKinley Morganfield and find out that's muddy waters, he wrote such great songs like Rolling Stone and things like that. Uh, it took those bands from England to ship us to the Delta and Chicago blues greats, and same thing going on with Blackstone Cherry. They're they're introducing a younger group of fans. The same thing, and I think that's an ongoing deal with with, with blues. It it has to expand that way, you know. But 
as I get older, Mark, I, I really love searching back and, and discovering artists that maybe I never had heard, you know, back, you know, in the day. And there's so many great blues artists, un, uh, unheralded guys, you know. And thank God for Eric Clapton and uh, people like that, that they did uh, expose us to those guys, you know, and get the church going initially. Yeah, and oh, it, yeah, I don't, I don't want to, you know, uh, connect your rediscover comment in, in just a couple of minutes. Yeah, you know, I, I just don't want to uh, move away from Ramblin' Man j- just yet. It, sure. But sure, man. Yeah, yeah, you, you, um, yeah, you, know, you have, you know, real standout performance on sh- shuffling back to Memphis. Uh, uh, what Richard wrote that song? Well, shuffling back to Memphis was actually written by the, the initial, the, the initial start of the song was, was a fellow by the name of Mark Orr that was in the band from like 92 to 95, uh, something like mm-hmm. that. And Mark Orr brought that song to the first, well, we did the first Johnny Johnson project back in 92, 93. Uh, we did another version of it back then. And uh, it's just been a, a, a live staple of our show for a long time. And, uh, yeah, Mark Orr actually, actually brought that song to us. And uh, the, the beautiful thing about that song uh the band, LaVon Helm and the band, they did a version of it as well. They loved that album we did with Johnny Johnson called Out of Work, and they loved that song, and they covered it on their album called uh, High on the Hog. <laughs> a lot of people don't realize that. And they they done an outstanding job of it, man. I mean, really, it's humbling. You know, uh, uh, what is it about Memphis that um, – yeah. Causes so many artists and writers to write about the the city and the river. Well, I just yeah, it's interesting observation. Well, there's just something about any musical city usually has a river running through it. You you know if if you check out Muscle Shoals. There's a river through that. New Orleans has definitely got a river, water around it. Mm-hmm. Memphis got that muddy Mississippi running through it. Louisville is a funky town. That's where I grew up. It's a great music town, it, especially back in the 60s. And the Ohio River, Cincinnati, you know, it just seemed like most of the really vibrant, uh, alive towns have a river running through it. It's, I'm not really sure what that's all about. But Memphis is a very interesting place, and Everything is just slower over there, it, or it, that's been my observation over the years. I've driven through it several times on my own. Go, you know, I've taken trips to the Delta and, and down to Helena, and it just seems like when you get in that area of the country, time just pulls back, and it's just less stressful. Now it may have changed the last ten years because I haven't been down there in a while, but there's just something magical in Memphis. You know, uh, it was a uh, 
it was an antenna for great music. Let's think of, you know, you had Sam Phillips, Sun Records, bringing Howlin' Wolf to us. And, uh, of course, Elvis and Carl Perkins and Roy Orbis and all those great artists, which were very steeped in the blues. But there's just something very special about that area right there. I don't It's hallowed ground of some sort, you know. And then when you cross across the state line and you get into the, the Mississippi and you really get down in the Delta, it really gets magical down there, man. It's just something else. It really is. Okay. And you're, you play a slide on Walking with the Wolf, is that right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, 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 what type of uh, slide do you uh, uh, use to get that uh, sound? Uh, my favorite slide is, is glass. I like glass. And I use a uh, signature slide made by the Rocky Mountain Slide Company. And it's um, it's it's a kind of a version of – they have another slide called the Swamp Frog. It's basically the same thing, and it's it's really their take on the old Corsidin pill bottle. If, if you remember the Corsidin cold tablets, originally they were in glass. They were little glass bottles back in the, the 50s and 60s and 70s, actually, and Dwayne Ullman popularized those bottles. When he played Slide mm-hmm. of the Ullman Brothers, that's what he used, and we, you know, from reading guitar player interviews and you know, we got hit to that was the way to go to get that sound. And uh, Rocky Mountain Slide Company, it's a little heavier slide than the original four season slide. I've got some original bottles, Mark, but I don't like them as well. I like a little heavier glass slide. Now, some people like metal, some people like brass, and different, different things. Uh, it's just the glass seems to work better for me to get the tone that I like, you know. And, uh, I'm walking with Wolf. That's like an open D tuning. And I play an open D and I play an open E. I play an open A, open G, and I also play in standard key. And what I love about slide, it is so close to being, you can really get vocal like. You can really get in, hit those blue notes. Just like a vocalist, you can emulate Ray Charles. You can emulate just about anybody with a slide. And uh, listen to Derek Trucks. He does that beautiful man. You know, really, really plays a really vocal style. You know, and that's why it's last slide, man. That's 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 what I like. That's you know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. Oh, I'm just uh, hoping that there are some younger listeners in the yeah. audience who. Uh, or you know, wanting to be inquisitive, so it's just trying to answer sure. everyone's questions. So when uh, you know, yeah, you know, you're doing putting together the set list to go out and do the Ramblin' Man Fair, even though you didn't know you were being recorded. Is um, you know, is it? Yeah, designed to include some of your uh, British uh, heroes, you know, just for the local uh, audience, or is that you know pretty much your standard set? That was pretty much our standard set. We, you know, we've we we've been doing the Beatles 
medley for quite some time. And, you know, when we start doing that, like most of the little jams we do, they just kind of start off one night. We end up doing them. We go, hey, that was fun. Let's just keep doing it. And when we done Don't Let Me Down, and, and then we started doing uh, Hey Jude at the end, and uh, it just works perfectly. But there again, it really came full circle going to England and playing that, you know, because that's the influence. I mean, come on, the Beatles, the Beatles and the Stones and people like that is what got us into this music anyway. Uh, but, uh, you know, no, no, really that set was not, we did change up a little bit. Picking on Nashville wasn't as big as it was in the States and Canada. It didn't really take off. It wasn't really worked over there as much. You know, it was more like our second and third albums were, were really our third album, Brave Home, was bigger in England than the other two first albums. And so we just basically, we didn't really feature as many off picking on Nashville the first go around over there, you know, and we we just kind of pulled back on Dumas Walker and walked softly the first time around. We're just now starting to play those songs over there. But more or less, we didn't debut any new songs over there. We just kind of stripped down the set since we were, you know, we only had so much time to play that day. And um, I think it was an hour set, I'm pretty sure, you know. So we usually like to play an hour and a half. If you give us two hours, we'll just keep going. Okay, and yeah. you, and, and uh, also, you know, towards the end of the CD, mm-hmm. um, you have the uh, drum solo and you know, mm-hmm. hidden behind the double bass and cymbals. Um, I, you know, is Fred uh, is, yeah. is is he like a Alien, engineered, human, octopus, uh, hybrid type. Per, it's like it sounds like he has about eight arms going all at the same time. <laughs> well, Fred came from outer space, you know. They dropped him off down on the farm <laughs> when he was. Just, they just dropped him off down there, and he's uh, <laughs> no, no, he uh, he, he's been <laughs> playing like that ever since he was just a little boy. Um, I mean, when I first met Fred was 1968 when we all, me and Richard and Fred started playing in 1968. We've been playing together off and on most of the time since uh, 1968, which makes 51 years this year. And uh, Fred was always good at at, uh, doing a solo. And his solo has developed over the years. And, hey, man, he's he's got it down. He's just, he's natural. He's natural with it. You know, it just it seems like there's that special relationship between the guitarist and drummer. Uh, you know, like Keith uh, Richards just you know really admires uh, Charlie Watts and you know Page yep. and Bonham. Uh, it just seems like everyone just kind of like gravitates. Uh, you know, to Fred, and you know, mm-hmm. you, know, mm-hmm. you, know you, you just gave the our, our listeners an exclusive about his unusual heritage. <laughs> but, 
<laughs> but it, yeah, there's just so, yeah. He, he's just uh, uh, you know he just doesn't miss a beat, and he has just uh, you know he's playing with his hands as well. I mean, he has everything going on. Double you know double bass. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, like what makes you know the drummer so like so, so, such a uh, you know, that unique personality that you know just really seems to like bring the band together. Well, a band is only as good as a drummer. You got to have a great drummer and the bass player. I, to me, those are the two main components. Before you get into the vocal and the melody line, if we don't have the groove to make people move, then you might as well just go home. You know, and and the, the, even though Fred's a great solo. Uh, he can play a great solo and all that. Fred has got a great feel and a great groove and a uh, great pocket. And I have, as I've gotten older, of course, growing up in the 60s, we were all about guitar solos and, you know, uh, Alvin Lee, who can play the fastest, and, you know, Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Jimmy Page, and all that stuff. But as I've gotten older over the years, I, I love playing uh, – rhythm guitar off the drums. I just soon play rhythm. I mean, I like playing lead, obviously, you know, but the rhythm, because Richard and I, we have a good good chemistry together, the way we place our notes. Uh, but I, I, I place my, whenever I'm playing rhythm guitar, my downbeat is going to go down with his snare beat. Uh, that's why I'm usually, I kind of go back near the drums a lot. And that's because I'm playing off of what he's doing, you know. And, uh, man, if you don't have that beat, you just don't have it. You've got to have that groove. You've got to have it. Every band's got to have it. Stones, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Charlie Watts, and Ringo Starr is a great drummer, man, you know. Um, and Fred is, too. And, uh, hey, man, life is too short to not have a good groove. <laughs> you gotta have you, you gotta make people move, man. That's all there is to it. Okay. And you know, wait, uh uh Blackstone Cherry comes out at, at, uh, on your uh Rambling. uh don't yeah uh don't let me down uh mm-hmm. on, on core to uh do, do the uh, cl- close your set. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so you have, uh, you have um, almost like both family bands uh, playing together. Well, they were actually headlining Ramblin' Man that day. And uh, we played earlier in the day. There were probably, I don't know, we played in the afternoon, and there was probably two or three bands before they played. So they were there, and they came out on the end and done the encore booth. And there was another band from England that were running on that tour with us called Bad Touch. They came out as well and on the encore. But uh, really, uh, that whole night was about Blackstone Cherry. That was their show, and it was amazing to see all the hard work they've done over the years and just seeing the crowd love them like they do over there. Uh, it was amazing uh, to see the things that they've accomplished over there. So, yeah, it was very special. 
for us to, to have those boys come out and uh, be a part of the, the encore with us. It was real sweet, man. It was it was a great moment for sure, you know, because they were they were responsible for getting us over there. They really were. Mm-hmm. We would have never went. Never went. I don't okay. think. And, okay. Well, and you, you know, you've been there. Uh, uh, since, since then, so you know, do do the headhunters have um, plans to do more extensive touring now? Uh, I, I'm sure it's in the right situation. You know, if we're invited to go back, and it, it uh, makes sense, and and uh, logistically, and everything falls into place. Uh, I, I could see us going back and doing another English tour. Yeah, I mean, I, at one point, I, I'm not gonna lie to you. I was like, I didn't even. I mean, nothing against the English people. I'm not. I love them. I do. And I love eating fish and chips. <laughs> I love, but, but 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 I I just got into being that far away from home, you know. But we had such a great time this last time with Dan Baird and Homemade Spin and Jason and the Scorchers. Uh, we just had a great time with those guys. I mean, and uh, it, I felt like this time maybe we actually made some progress in, in getting our name out a little better, played some bigger rooms this time. So, you know, God only knows. We'll see what happens, uh, Mark, you know. If it, if, if the uh, opportunity presents itself, I'm sure we'll go back, you know. Okay. Well, uh, we have a nice-sized uh English audience, so hopefully they're listening now, or I or uh, yeah, will listen uh, to the archive and you know t- tell their uh, you know local venue uh, managers to book you. Oh, they're great but people, th- man. And you know, and the thing is, what's what's so neat is our family heritage kind of starts from the UK, all of us. So it was really neat going to the homeland, so to speak. The only thing, you know, we got to play Glasgow, Scotland, which was neat. Uh, and uh, I would really love to see Ireland someday. I don't know if it ever happened, but I would at least, hopefully, we'll get to go see Ireland someday, you know. But yeah, yeah, we'd love to come back in the right situation, for sure. You know? Okay. And, yeah, you, know, you just mentioned uh, early on in the show that um, it, you have three bonus tracks mm-hmm. uh, that that the band did with uh, Johnny Johnson uh, added to the uh, Ramblin' Man Fair CD. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about uh, you know, how you got to work with you know one of your heroes, you know, uh, Johnny? You know, uh, you know we got together again at, at you know, the Johnny Johnson Blues Festival in Fairmont uh, before, mm-hmm. you know, it got rained out and <laughs> the uh, storm. But, yeah, you know, uh, who, who is Johnny and, you know, you know how, how did you end up, you know, doing a full CD with him and then this, uh, you know, a- adding a few more of uh, his songs onto the, the Ramblin' Man CD? Um. We we're all big fans of Chuck Berry. You know, we love the Chuck Berry Chess Records catalog. 
And then when you start listening to a lot of those songs, the, the piano is such a big part of what's going on. And, you know, when we were growing up, we didn't know who the piano player was. We had no idea until we started getting more students of the music and going back and studying liner notes and going, oh, Johnny Johnson's name was popping up, you know, here and there in the interviews. And um, we become aware of Johnny. And, um, oh, let me get this right, 91, 92. You know, Johnny, for years and years, uh, he left the road. You know, he was out with Chuck. And then, at some point, Johnny got tired of traveling and got tired of the music business, and he took a job driving a bus in St. Louis. And uh, Ian Stewart, the guy that played piano with the Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. was influential in getting Keith Richards to track him down when they were doing Hell, Hell, Rock and Roll. And they, they found Johnny and got him out of retirement and got him out playing again. So, you know, when we saw Hell, Hell, Rock and Roll, we saw Johnny Johnson. And then in 91, 92, um, Johnny released his first solo album called Johnny Be Bad. And uh, on our way to do the uh, Macy's Day Parade, I can't remember. It's a little little clouded now, but we were either we were going to New York, and we listened to that album on the bus, and we were just blown away. Because some of our friends in NRBQ were on it. Uh, one of my guitar heroes from Louisville, Steve Ferguson, was on it. And, uh, of course, Eric Clapton was on it. Eric Clapton was on that uh, release as well. And uh, so we were just totally, we were like, oh, man, what a great album. So we were, we were up for a Grammy in ninety. Maybe it's 91 Everything's a blur man. It's a blur Maybe 91 You know So we're, we're at this uh, Grammy party Yeah it was, it was actually a 91 And uh, we're at a Grammy party We go the night before the, the ceremony And you know in this room There's everybody There's Roy Rogers There's Buddy Guy There's the Almond Brothers and then here comes Johnny Johnson, and we just all freaked out. We wanted to meet Johnny Johnson. And so Johnny's manager noticed how much we were into it. Of course, our manager saw it too. So they got talking. The next day, I don't know, we were asked to uh, produce the next Johnny Johnson album for Electra Records, and uh, which would have been the... Uh, this is when... The band with Doug and Ricky was still, you know, we're still in the band, and um, so we make the connection with Johnny. So in '92, unfortunately, in June of '92, the original lineup of band members imploded, and uh, we had to put the band back together real hurriedly, and which we got our cousin Anthony in on bass, who was a Shoe in, amazing musician, and Mark Orr, great writer, great singer, and he's more of a blues singer. So one of the uh, there was two. We're talking about like June, man. We're putting everything back together. I mean, the, you know, the the, the band implodes. Uh, we're picking up shrapnel around us. We're going, okay, we got to go tour. We got to do another album for Mercury. Plus, we've agreed to do another album 
for Johnny Johnson producing that. So the first thing of business is get back out on the road, get an album together, which become Ravon, and then I can't remember it was either in the fall or uh, winter of '93. I can't remember. Johnny Johnson flew to um, Nashville. We picked him up. He came up to Glasgow, and we jammed with him. And it was just magic from from the moment we started jamming with him. He made us play like uh, very mature. He made us play just stuff that we just didn't normally do. So we got together, wrote a few songs on the spot. Uh, Mark brought a few. Richard brought a few. A lot were written on the floor. And then we all hmm. reconvened at Sound Shops, and I believe it was only 93, and uh, we we recorded That'll Work. And when it was released, we did a, we did a, some touring with Johnny to promote it, you know. And we just become very close to Johnny. He was like our uncle. He was We were very close to him. So until he passed away, we we played off and on with him. I mean, there was not very many years we did not play with Johnny at some point, maybe a show or two here and there, you know. And then, um, mm-hmm. and then we brought him back. We had a we were doing an album called Soul back in the early, oh gosh, uh, early two thousands, and we brought Johnny in to play some piano on Have You Ever Loved a Woman. And we just kept rolling tape and rolling tape. We found out that Johnny had some health issues going on. And we just kept rolling tape. And, and that's how uh, Meet Me in Bluesland came along, you know. So it, it was just from that relation. It really all started from those little chess records, hearing those records, and then meeting him at the Grammy party, and then doing that work. And it just kind of morphed into a, a great thing, you know, a great friendship over the years. So the yeah the bonus tracks were just they were they were actually laying around from uh, the Meet Me in Bluesland sessions actually that's what they were from. Okay, uh, they're they're very good. Thank you, thank you. Okay, it, okay. So you know we have uh, about another twenty minutes left. But, um, sure. You know there sure. n- number of other things we can get into. Um, you know, you've been doing your. Uh, Radio show uh, lowdown hoedown for about twenty years now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, listeners can tune in Monday nights from eight to eleven Eastern at wdnsfm dot com. And you know, you know, you you mentioned, uh, uh, you know. Yeah, you were rediscovering some of these uh, yeah. artists that, um, you know, so, someone like Keith you know, Richards is, uh, you know, just, you know, get getting into and, you know, the Stones popularize. Yes. Yeah, uh, you know, this artist from like the 40s or something. But, um, you know, the, you know, even though, you know, you're talking about rediscovering uh, musicians. You know, but Barbara and I are basically uh, doing that with some of these topics uh, mm-hmm. in history. Uh, it's, you know, it's uh, basically the, 
you know, same idea, just going about it through different uh, directions. But, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, uh, over, you know, like for, for example, uh, you know, you've been playing a, a lot of Shuggy Otis over the last couple weeks. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, and I started going to, uh, yeah, you know, YouTube and you know, looking for uh, some of his songs and you know, like the Freedom Flight, uh, yeah, you know, uh, CD that uh, you know, I might be something I have to uh, order sometime soon. But uh, you know, that's one of the neat things about your uh, radio show is you, know, you get a lot of okay, you know, standard you know, classics from Muddy Waters. Yeah. But yeah, you know, there's these just uh, uh, you, know, you know most people are never going to hear Shuggy Otis on um you know, you know just your mainstream FM station. But you know you, you're you're introducing us to uh, what he was doing in the early seventies. Uh, you know, can, uh, can can you explain the audience? Uh, you know his, his importance. Yeah. Well, his dad was Johnny Otis, great band leader, drummer. Well, he played several instruments, but uh, if you go back and, and uh, look for the original version of Willie and the Handjob that Eric Clapton popularized in the '70s, that was originally done by Johnny Otis. And Johnny was a great R&B cat from um, the, the Los Angeles area. And uh, his son, Shuggy, came up early. Just had, He started on drums, but then he switched over to guitar. And he, he, he would go out playing with his dad, and they would have to put sunglasses on him and paint a mustache on him because he was too young to play some of the bars. But I'm not really sure how he got discovered. Now, let me, I'll tell you the album that I first heard him on. Al Cooper, Cooper Session number two, called Cooper Sessions, and introducing Shuggy Otis. And I kid you not, as much as I love Michael Bloomfield, who I revere quite highly, along with Eric Clapton and B.B. King and everybody else, Shuggy Otis played for a 14, 15-year-old kid, played as mature as anybody I've ever heard, man, on that album right there. And just an amazing feel, amazing tone, uh, great vibrato, and really. So what happened to Shuggy, uh With each album, he kind of got away from the blues, and his music got deeper, got more into the R&B thing. Uh, the album that really everybody cites as a uh, a big influence is Inspiration Information or Information, which I get mixed up all the time. Uh, Information Inspiration, I think. And it came out in 74. Uh, Of course, he did write uh, another important thing on Freedom Flight. He wrote Strawberry Letter Number 23, which the Brothers Johnson made a hit in 77 with that. You know, and uh, but if you listen to uh, the album from '74, man, it's got it's a it's a soulful version of Pet Sounds. I swear, man, it is a heavy, 
heavy, great album. And uh, not only is he a great guitar player, he's a great writer, great producer, and a great vocalist. And he's a big influence on people like Joel Bramhall, too. Uh, I think he was a big influence on Prince. Uh, there's a lot of people loved him. And I'll tell you, I tell I, I, I was hip to him back in the 70s, but sometimes you know how it is. You get away from people, and then when you hear them, you go, my gosh, I forgot all how good he was, you know. And I think a lot of people that are into blues guitar should definitely go check out Shirky Otis. And there's a really cool clip out on the uh, Internet of Shirky, Johnny, and his band jamming Roy Buchanan. It's really neat. Pretty neat. Oh, I wow. Yeah, oh yeah, it's out there. Shuggy doesn't play much. Shuggy looks a little bit timid in this clip, but if he wanted to cut loose, he could have uh, held his own with, with Roy. That's just my opinion, you know. But Shuggy's uh, uh, one of my favorite guitar players, man. Him and Michael Bloomfield, you know. Just, they're wonderful. Yeah, uh, and, and, and you know, that's just one of the uh, interesting aspects of you, you know your radio show is you, you don't let us forget uh, some of these people who got us to where we are and you know, yeah. Just, uh, yeah 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 it, it's uh, and you know what, uh, last week I think you played Rare Earth and you, know, <laughs> you don't yeah, hear yeah. It, it, yeah people aren't going to hear them much yeah. on. Uh, you know, mainstream radio, but you know, it, it's places like a, a you know WDN SFM that, yeah. that uh, you know you, you could dig deeper into those lost tracks that really uh, you know have, have had a profound <clears throat> impact on other artists. Sure. And, Sure. And yeah, you know, there, um, you know, there, there are, um, you know, some nefarious legends associated with, uh, you know, the blues, you know, get, you know, the crossroads stuff. Uh, but <clears throat> you know, you have a gospel CD, and you know, the <laughs> Headhunters play "Spirit in the Sky" in concerts. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. You, you know, you're friends with. Uh, Phil Keggy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Glass Harp was on on your show what about three years ago? Yeah, he, uh, yeah Phil had. Yeah, I think Phil's had what a fifty year career in gospel music. Uh, Warren Haynes is one of your good friends. Uh, you know he. Yeah, the uh, Almond Brothers, or you know, uh, kind of a uh, you know, there's a gospel uh, in, in the Almond Brothers uh, canon, mm-hmm. but um, and, and another one of your good friends is uh, Billy F. Gibbons, who is a reverend mm-hmm. now. You know, you're playing Amazing Grace on Arlen Roth's uh, slide guitar summit. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, how? Uh, it is you know blues being used by a, a lot of people now to make the world a better place. 
Well, the blues came out of the church. It came out of the fields. They came, you know, those field hollers. You know, when they were working in the field, they were singing. But the really deep blues came out of churches. The Kaylee Morgan Field sang in church. Muddy Waters. His uh, his uncle was a, a preacher or cousin. Uh, I can't think of his name right now. It, it escapes me. But the really deep blues come out of the churches, and the blues has a spirit about it. Mm-hmm. It makes people feel. You know, a lot of people think, "Oh, man, the blues make you feel bad." You know, you're just over here and laying in a ditch. You know, but no, man, I think the blues make you happy. Man, anybody pick up a guitar and play a Jimmy Reed shuffle. Play uh, You Got Me Running like Jimmy Reed does and tell me that if you don't feel better by the time you play that, then you don't have a you don't have any soul, man. I'm telling you. There's just nothing more gratifying than sitting around and just playing Jimmy Reed, man, on the guitar. And it's as simple as it can be. And it's not about the simplicity, it's about the feel. You know, and but it, it, there's a spirit, and I think, yeah, I do believe the blues makes the world a better place. I, I pretty much, on my show, I'm mostly focused on, I, I'm not as focused on the newer blues artists because there's great shows out there on the Internet that, that focus on whatever's happening in the blues now. I will play something new from Jimmy Bond every now and then, uh, or, you know, I've, I've had Arlen on. Uh, but mostly my, my focus is like 1990 backwards, really, you know. And mm-hmm. um, that that's kind of – because I'm, I'm looking for stuff that people just don't – may have missed, you know. And uh, we've got a really another fine band from this area here called Otis. A lot of people don't really know – well, yeah, a lot of people do know about them. They, they've been to England three times, and these kids have got a really good handle on the blues, too. I mean, I'm talking about the deep blues. You know, they know all about John Brown. You know, they know about Sylvester Weaver. You know, I mean, yeah, you know, it's cool to know about Albert King and Freddie King and B.B. King and that, but man, if you really want to get down to the nitty-gritty where the uh, rubber meets the road, you got to really get back, man, and, and go down to Delta. you got to go to Stovall's Plantation. You got to go down there where the cotton was picked and find out. You know, there, there's so many great artists that just never got um, the air. You, you know, way before yeah. Bobby King. You know, and uh, there's just so much to discover through it, and it can make the world a better place. And God knows it needs to be a better place. <laughs> I think it can. Mm-hmm. Be, I'm happy. Well, I'm at my little part of the world's happy right now. You know. Okay, and and speaking of keep uh, keeping people happy, uh, yeah, you know the Headhunters recently played with uh, uh, Brett Michaels. Uh, he, he's yeah. a local boy uh, for me. Uh-huh. Uh, he's back in the Pittsburgh area uh, pretty frequently to do uh, charity e- e- events for. Children, I, he, he just seems like a, a really nice guy. You know, you've uh, uh, been, been a part-time member of uh, Leonard Skinnerd. Uh, you know, you jammed with uh, the Marshall Tucker Band, and you know, yeah, a couple weeks yeah. ago, you just, uh, 
played with um, uh, Charlie Daniels. And I, you know, when you're working, uh, you don't have, you may not have a whole lot of time to practice. How do you, you know, just kind of walk into a situation where you're playing with someone else or they're playing with you, and yeah, you know, how do you, uh, you know, just agree on a, you know, just a standard song, and then just kind of like nod to each other to, you know, when when to do a lead or something like. That. How how do you work something like that out? Oh, it's uh, it's got to be it's about a grace of God that you just don't fall on your butt, you know. <laughs> Sometimes. I mean, I've been in situations, uh, one, one time at the Dallas Guitar Show, I was playing between Jack Pearson, Red Colbert, uh, I'm sorry, Red Bocart, and uh, Bugs Henderson, and I was way out of my league, man, you know, And but, but some those guys pushed me into another realm, somehow I must have played the right thing, you know, because, I, I, I you know, the, the people seem to like it, but... You know, music is communication. It's meant, it's not a competition. It's meant to have fun. It's meant to make people happy. It's meant to make people think. And I would be playing music if I wasn't making a living at it. And by the grace of God, I'm 66 now. And and I can say that I, I would not, there was nothing different. I, I mean, obviously, I could have made some better business decisions personally on on investing or something like that but I can't complain I would not you know I would not change my career for nothing man you know I've got to um, like you said I've got to, to me and Billy Gibbons are, are, are really good friends uh, we talked for an hour and a half Easter and it was over a version of amazing another version of amazing grace I did he heard and he called me wanting to know what I was playing through and this and that you know and we're just buddies. I've always admired Billy. And, you know, getting to play with Charlie Daniels, getting to play with uh, Government Mule, getting to play with Marshall Tucker Band, uh, Blackberry Smoke, and people like that. The only regret, I had a chance to play with the Allman Brothers one time. I got to play with Scandrid, as you know. Uh, but we really just capped it all off. I, I went to an Allman Brothers show one time, and I didn't show up till after it was over, and Warren said, why didn't you tell me you were coming? We got you up to play. And, and I was thinking, well, I would have been a nervous wreck. And, but uh, I, I do regret that now. And I regret uh, had offered one time to go sit in with Albert Collins, which I would have got my butt thanks real good. But uh, I regret that too. But it, it, it's just a thrill to get to know these guys, Mark. You know, mm-hmm. it's like Arlen, like Arlen. Uh, growing up in the 70s, I, you know, we read his uh, columns in Guitar Player magazine. We knew what a great player he was, and to get to know people like Arlen, you go, it's just a, it's, it's just a gift from God, man. It's a gift from above, you know, to get to do what we do. And we're we're very, very lucky. We're very blessed to get to do this for a living, you know. And, uh, you know, sometimes you go, you know, you get tired. You don't get so much tired of the work. You get tired in the work. You know, maybe from the traveling, this and that. But mm-hmm. man, uh, I don't practice as much as I should. But a big part of practicing is listening to music and learning when not to play. It's not 
you know, uh, playing a solo is a lot like writing a letter to those friends. You know, you got to use good dictation. You just can't scream the whole time. You got to take a break. Let the person digest what you've played. You know, I had somebody one time say, "Well, what do you? Uh, you'll play a phrase and you'll stop." And so we, well, I don't see the the reason just to keep playing. You know, I mean, you know, let the bluegrass guys do that. They can do that better than I can. But man, you want to play something, let the guys out, out the crowd or the people react. Hopefully, you touch them. You know. And music is communication, and it's a great form of communication. It's a gift from above. It's a great gift from above, you know. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> you know, uh, I do know that when, when I, I do believe I was called to play music, I know the exact spot that the good Lord probably said, this is what you're going to be doing for a living. It was in 68, and about two weeks later, I met Richard and Fred. So there you go. It's an amazing thing. Okay. Okay. So uh, we have about three minutes left, and I don't want to go uh, oh, over no, time. And yeah. three more hours. Come on, man. We're just getting started yeah. now. We're not even talking about people yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just I, I I don't want to have my Spinal Tap moments uh, uh, right now, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, you know you. You know, you, you had that A, A to Z uh, rock fest coming up. Uh, it, anything else? Yeah. You... Well, that is actually some friends doing that. I'll be on that. That's in Glasgow, Kentucky, uh, this Saturday, Friday and Saturday, rock A to Z. The headhunters will actually be in Dubuque, Iowa, and Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I will miss that. But the as far as the rest of the year, the headhunters, we got the two dates this weekend, and we got a show in Alabama on New Year's Eve, and then we're going to reconvene, get together uh, early in the year, and, and start recording a new EP or album, start working on new material, and then we'll hit the road again. You know, and plus I got another project I'm working on with my my stepson uh, that the songs he wrote. He's a real talented cat, you know, and. Uh, Maybe next year that'll see light of the day as well, you know. Okay. So, well, hey, man, you know, we're lucky to do what I get to do, and thank y'all for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, uh, uh, we, you know, are just uh, very appreciative that uh, you were able to work us into your busy schedule, and yeah, you know, uh, people can find out more about you by going to. Uh, KentuckyHeadhunters.net yeah. and tune in Monday nights uh, for your uh, WDNSFM.com mm-hmm. uh, for uh, Lowdown Hoedown and check uh, Vintage Guitar Magazine mm-hmm. and uh, I think we're almost out of time. Uh, Barbara, do you want to wrap up anything and I just, oh sure. Uh, you know, okay. Uh, happy to happy to do that. It's been an amazing show. It's been very interesting, and and we are so very grateful to both of our guests. Um, I actually even recognized a lot of the names you guys were throwing around. So I really feel like I'm I've been in the mix here all along. Um, thank thank you thank you everyone for listening. We so appreciate your coming and listening and sharing with with us. Uh, your time and your energy. 
Uh, this will be up on YouTube tomorrow. And if you couldn't catch it tonight, then you can catch it then. Good night, everybody.